This week on the In-Depth Podcast, tennis legend and gender equality advocate, Billie Jean King. We got a 45-pound gift voucher. (laughs) For winning Wimbledon. For winning Wimbledon. It's been almost 50 years since King fought and won the Battle of the Sexes match against self-proclaimed chauvinist Bobby Riggs and co-founded World Team Tennis, a co-ed-focused professional league. But she's still just as passionate about providing a level playing field in sport. When a child comes to watch a match, he or she is watching boys and girls, men and women, cooperating in this common objective. In 2014, I sat down with the icon in Philadelphia where she shared the far-reaching impact of the 1972 passing of Title IX. Everyone thinks it was for women, but it was really, it's for both genders. The immense pressure of her Battle of the Sexes match the following year. Rosie says if you lost, that Uh, she believes it would have set women back 20 years. I Um, totally agree. And reflects on her coming out announcement in the early 80s. Some people thought, I said it's a mistake because I was with a woman, and that's not what I meant at all. But first, King remembers falling in love with tennis and the $8 lavender racket that started it all. Tell about how you first heard of tennis in the first place. Well, I'm sitting in fifth grade next to Susan Williams, and she looks at me and goes, do you want to play tennis? And I go, what's tennis? And she says, you don't know about tennis? I said, no. I said, what do you do? She says, you get to run, jump, and hit a ball. I go, whoa, those are my three most favorite things in sports. I'll try it. I remember us hitting. And then I went home and told my dad and mom, God, I really like this. This is really fun. And um, can I get a, you know, could you get me a racket? My dad said, they, my, they didn't my dad, want to buy you No, one. my dad said no. And I said, why? I like it. He says, how much do you like it? I said, I really like it. I mean, I think I'd even love it maybe. He says, fine, find a way to buy a racket. You figure it out. You really want it, you figure it out. So I went to the neighbors and pleaded with them and they gave me quarters. And when I had like $8.29 up in the cupboard in a mason jar, I couldn't wait any longer. I was too antsy. And my dad and mom took me to Brown's uh, Sporting Goods store in Long Beach. And uh, the salesperson comes up and he, he says, what can I do for you? I said, what does $8.29 buy? And I, of course I bought it by color. Uh, the strings were lavender, and the throat of the racket was white and lavender, and it had a felt lavender handle. I just loved that racket. Was it a good and I one? Slept with, no, it was very low-lined uh, and matter. I didn't know the difference. Yeah. But uh, Susan and I also played on a softball team, and we're out at the park, and she tells the coach, oh, I took Billy to play tennis. And Val Halloran, the coach, looks at me and says, oh, they give free instruction here every Tuesday at Houghton Park. I heard the word free. I go, you're kidding. That's when I knew I had a chance. So I started uh, going on Tuesdays, but Clyde Walker, who I adored from the very first moment, he was about probably f- late 50s. Mm-hmm. So I thought he was probably an elderly gentleman at the time. But um, I just remember the first day I went out with him. At the end of that day, I told my mom I knew what I wanted to do with my life. And she thought, that's nice. You know, you have homework, piano lesson, you know, right. like this, where we're driving home. And I was jumping up on the seat, like, you know, bouncing. And we're not allowed to do that in the car because they're very strict. And I, I couldn't help it. I kept bouncing. And she could tell I was very excited, but she thought it would last a week or two. And you always knew you, growing up, that you wanted to be special and you wanted to be the best at something. And I think it was 13, 14 years old, you're talking to your reverend, and he says, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I said, I want to be number one in the world in tennis And that, at that time. And he looked at me and I thought, I don't think he thinks I can do it because I was kind of, you know, like glasses and, you know, 
not right. not too impressive. Well, it's probably. a 13, 14 year old kid, right? But I knew. But I used to watch Reverend Bob Richards, who won the bronze in 48, the gold in 52 and 56 in pole vault. So he was one of my heroes. And every Sunday he'd have sports in the sermon. And so you felt like you were shot out of a cannon when he would give a sermon. Even my dad started coming back to church. And when he was sitting next to me, my dad, I go, Dad goes, this is really good. I, he says, I'm glad I came back to church. I said, Dad, the reason you came back to church is he's talking about sports. <laughs> you know, we're laughing. It was so funny. I'll never forget sitting in the pew before the before church kind of got started, just laughing with him. And he started laughing. He knew I, I busted him so badly. And my mom started giggling and my brother giggled. But um, it was, he, Reverend Bob Richards was such a great example um, because I used to go watch him work out next to the church. There's a, a dirt field, and he had a pole vault, you know, all set up. And he was on the Wheaties box. He was, he was a great motivator. To what extent do you think the fact that you were maybe a little less advantaged than some of the, your friends and your peers gave you more drive I think it up? gave me more drive, yeah. But also, I really, you know what I've really realized now that I'm much older and can look back and appreciate things in a different light is that my mom and dad actually brought us up in a way that... Um, just we were hungry and never went hungry but we were hungry we had fire in the belly my brother and I and I think it's because we just weren't given everything right away and my parents were very strict but very loving but the best thing my mother ever did was she sat down with me when I was about 10 or 11 and showed me a budget I, you know when you're 10 years old you don't realize every time you flick a light switch that's money right or put petrol you know or, or gas in the car or change a tire or uh, buy a home, or paint the home. You know, you don't even think about those things. Utilities, I mean, all those things. You never think about at that age. And she would just, she went through it uh, line item by line, and item by item, and I went, oh my gosh. So she said, when we tell you kids no, it's not that we don't want to give it to you, it's we can't usually afford it. So if we say no to you, it means we probably can't afford it. I'm curious, just, you know, back when you were in your prime and, you know, playing it, uh, your peak. How many hours a day were you practicing then? I practiced really hard. I mean, I would probably put in, <laughs> I was going to sponsor, it depends what time of my life you're talking about. When I'm a teenager. Well, I mean, when you were at your peak. Uh, at my professional peak? Professional. Oh, well, it depends if it was a tournament week or an off week, but off week would be at least six hours a day. Of, yeah. You know, you do drills, uh, you do uh, cross, you know, you do a lot of sprints. In those days, we didn't have the knowledge they do today. I mean, if I were playing today, I'd do it very differently, but I did a lot of uh, two against ones, and that means two players are hitting against you and you run after everything. And I was I'm very intense, um, practice really well and practice smart. You're in college, a few credits shy of graduating, and well, all of a sudden fault. you decide <laughs> you, you want to go to Australia for a, well, a few months. Explain what the well, thinking was. Well, by then Larry like. and I are engaged and we're talking and he knew I wanted to be number one. He thought I should try to be. He was, he was such a feminist. Yeah, he actually made me a feminist. Um, when we're yeah. walking on campus, uh, we're holding hands, walking by the courts. He says, you know, you're a second class citizen. I said, what? And I knew I, I you know how you sense things, but you can't articulate it? Sure. Well, Larry helped me articulate it. Um, he said, well, you're a second class citizen. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm the seventh man on the six-man tennis team. He's funny. He wasn't. He was the last, you know, near the end. He said, "And I've got a, a grant for biochemistry, and I've got money because I'm on the t tennis team." 
and you're the best player in the whole school. You're, you're the best known person. You're the best player. I was probably number two in the country by then or three. I don't know what it was, but I was, you know, really good by then. Right. And he says, and why can't you get anything? Because you're a girl. And that just solidified everything from that moment. He, so he said, you're a second class citizen. He said, that's ridiculous. He said, you should be getting the most. You bring more prestige to the school than anybody else here. So I thought, gosh, he's probably right. So I always say that it was, it's a man that made me a feminist. And people laugh. But the word feminist is just so, um, I don't know how people, why people respond to it so badly. Just look it up. All it is is equal, equal having equal, you'd want your daughter and son, I hope, to have equal rights and opportunities. I mean, I would. So that's, that's why I don't, I don't understand why people get so huffy about it. And girls never want to claim it because they think boys won't like us if we say that. And that's really sad. I think boys and girls, um, to be a feminist means you're just for everybody, you champion everybody. <laughs> I don't know why there's this, this inflammatory response to... Uh, to the word. You said uh, you really did not like the amateur side no. uh, of tennis. You called it the shamaterism. Absolutely. Uh, or I you got in big trouble. What, what, explain the issue that you had with that. Well, amateurs, um, the people who ran the tournament were also the officials that made the rules. And we would make $14 a day. Like even at Wimbledon, we'd get expense money. But you, you see how many people go to Wimbledon? We still had a lot of people then. Even in the old days, it was full. Right. And we weren't getting paid any of the money that they were charging, except for expense money. I mean, I was living on six pounds a week, and, you know, we didn't it's have any. I mean, uh, right. when, when we won, we couldn't even afford to buy a dress to go to the ball. Because everybody says, aren't you going to go to the ball? And Bud Collins asked us, you know, the Boston Globe. And I said, we can't go. We, can't we don't have a dress. He says, well... And I said, we don't have any money. We're down to about like $3 before we could get home. And so he took us to dinner. That's how I really got to know Bud Collins really well was that night. He says, do you guys drink? And we said, no. I was 17 and Karen was 18 and I still don't really drink. So it's like, he goes, oh, great. This is cheap dates. <laughs> well, isn't it true that even when you were becoming the best in the world, you were making like $100 yeah, we're a making week. $14 a day. Uh, um, or if we stay in a hotel, 28 And for winning your first Wimbledon, uh, is it true you got zero prize money and one of your friends bought pounds. you like six Mars bars? <laughs> yeah, well, that was Lynn Abbas got me six Mars because she loved, I love their, their candy over there. It's great. But um, we got a 45-pound gift voucher. <laughs> for winning Wimbledon. For winning Wimbledon. What would you say were your first kind of 15 minutes of fame when you were growing up? My first 15 minutes of fame? Probably when I upset Margaret uh, Smith now Margaret Court in 1962. She was seated number one. In Wimbledon, In right? Wimbledon, first round. And uh, I'm this little spunky kid from Long Beach, California, Billie Jean Moffat, and I go out to play her, and you know what? I'd already dreamed I was gonna play her in the first round. Isn't that weird? I told yeah. my mom and dad, and um, they thought, they looked at me, I, I think I dreamed about it in December. I was at the dining room table, and they go, my parents aren't tennis people. They don't, they're not getting all thrashed up about yeah. who, who's who and all that. They're going, okay, whatever. You, dream, you dreamt that? I said, yeah. So when the draw came out, and i never forget at Queens Club, Jerry Williams came out and said, who do, you, who do you think you drew the first round? I said, I think I drew Margaret Smith. And he goes, how did you know that? So I dreamt about it. And so 
Anyway, I played her, and then my brother found out first that I beat her, and he, he went to tell Dad that I beat her, and my dad said, no, she couldn't have beat her because she was seated number one or something. He at least knew that. And she, he said, Dad, she beat her. <laughs> and the Time Magazine was calling me and all these. I didn't know what, I didn't understand anything. What's going on? Right. It's like, I remember sitting on the floor at, at the Westbury Hotel talking to people, and I'm like, why do they want to talk to me? I swear I didn't connect at all. I was like, huh? I was like kind of embarrassed. And that, I think that's probably my first 15 minutes of fame. Battle of the sexes. Uh, when you uh, took on Bobby Riggs, obviously uh, it captivated the, the nation. What a lot of people don't know, though, or fail to remember, is that he actually played another female tennis player prior to you in Margaret Court and uh, beat her. Um, explain how, you, when, when I guess she originally decided to play Riggs, uh, you had a conversation with her. What, what, I know what, exactly what it was. It was in go? the elevator at the uh, Virginia Slums of Detroit, and she announced to me that they're playing, that they're going to play this match. And I go, oh, Margaret, do you know what you've done? I said, this isn't a tennis match, but it is a tennis match. And she goes, I'm getting 35000 I said, that's fantastic. I'm glad for you, but first of all, I don't think she knew that everybody that he had been asking me for years, and he went to Chris Everett, he went to others, and she's the one that said yes, which, listen, $35,000 in 1973 is a lot of money. We're only in our third year of women's, of women's professional tournaments, you know, uh, tennis. That's of having the tour and everything. Tennis became professional in 1968, so we're only into five years. Everything's in a very tenuous position very um, men and the women and he kept following me and saying let's play we'll make lots of money he was one of my heroes too so I knew who he was and I was very clear on what he'd accomplished and I just kept saying no but when he played Margaret mm -hmm. I tried to explain to her what it meant about social change and, right but you gotta understand this elevator discussion it's, we're going down to get a car to go back to the hotel and we weren't in the same cars when we went back, so I had to talk pretty fast. I said, whatever you do, please win. You have to win. You have to win. Because all I could see was the tour going bye-bye after all this work. Right. Her, you know, just putting, just people saying, why should we even care about the women? And I was just seeing all these things that could happen. I was just mortified. I was petrified. And, and, and oh, then she loses. She lost badly, though. And Your I reaction. Oh, I was so upset. I said, okay, I have to play him. Everything was on the line, and Title IX had just been passed the year before, June 23, 1972, and that was a huge piece of legislation. Uh, everyone thinks it was for women, but it was really, it's for both genders. It says no sex discrimination, that means for either boys or girls, but we were so far behind. There were um, gender quotas in college and universities. For instance, if you were a woman and wanted to go to Harvard Medical School, 5% of the class was women. So we had, we're always going to get the, we're never going to have a chance. No athletic scholarships for women. When I went to college, I worked two jobs at Cal State LA. Thought I was living large, but 30 miles away, Stan Smith, who was number one, eventually had a full scholarship to SC. Arthur Ashe, who's of color, yeah. got to go to UCLA on a full scholarship. I did not get to because I am a girl. So that's why the gender is so important for the 21st century. I mean, we're still making 77 cents on the dollar. But anyway, to get back to the Bobby Riggs thing, as soon as I heard that she lost, I go, 
I'm going to have to play him now. It's exactly what I said. I'm going to have to play him now. Because you just didn't want that. Oh, to... I knew that I had, to, I had to turn people's thoughts around about us, that they had to think that we can do things, that we can actually walk and chew gum at the same time. And I wanted to make sure the tour continued. And I knew we were going to get humongous exposure. I knew it was going to just touch the hearts and minds. I knew people were going to go crazy. They did. They're exact. I mean, I knew they were going to get crazy, and they did. They're making bets. You're too young, but they were making bets. It was like a Super Bowl. Right. It was worse. When you apparently seclude yourself for a while leading up to the match, because I guess you wanted to make yourself comfortable with just be beating a man. But what do you recall from that actual match? Not a lot, because really? I was in the zone. Um, what do you remember? I was so nervous when I when we first announced it, but what happens with me with everything is I get really nervous and I get calmer and calmer and calmer and calmer as I get closer. Now I don't remember this, but two people said to me. Rosie said she came in 20 minutes before the match in the locker room because she had to announce, so she wanted to know where I was at, mm -hmm. you know, mentally and, and emotionally, and I told her I was going to win. She told me that. Years later. Well, you, you actually she, call, called your brother the night before the match and told him Exactly, to but I didn't find this out until it. just a little bit ago. Randy told me, since you called me the night before and you told me to bet the house on you. I said, I did? <laughs> I said, I, I don't remember all that. He says, sure. And he says, I put the notice up on the locker room door and every guy bet me. And he said, you know what? I got a whole big plate of chicken wings and I watched that match and just... Started thinking about counting that money. He says, that was great. What were your emotions going into the arena Calm, that night? I had to say calm. Calm? Everything, I had to be absolutely in the zone. One ball at a time. In the beginning, I was gonna play my game. I was gonna serve volley. I was gonna be real aggressive. But what I decided to do is gonna hit the ball, decided I was gonna hit the ball as slowly as I could, as softly as I could, and then I was gonna run him at least five points. Whether I won or lost a point didn't matter. Mm -hmm. I was gonna run him into the ground. And I already made that decision when I got to the umpire's chair. So I walked out to the baseline. We started hitting, warm up, and I made my decision, and I stuck to it. After you end up uh, winning the match, Sports Illustrated's uh, Frank DeFord said, and this is in the couple of years that followed, you'll likely go down as the most significant athlete of the century, more significant than Babe Ruth, Muhammad Ali, even Jackie Robinson, and uh, another article um, said your closest cultural kin are not athletes, but people like Martin Luther King Jr., Hugh Hefner, and the Beatles, people uh, associated with really? a, a, a movement that uh, you know affects uh, great change because of the impact that match had on the women's movement. But how did women react to you well, after actually, that Well, actually, men and women have reacted uh, fantastically well. The women come up to me. What it did for them is it gave them courage and self-confidence to ask for what they want and need, for instance, let's say a raise. For the men, I get men coming up to me in their late 40s, 50s, 60s, and they were young when they saw this. And they start getting tears in their eyes because they go, that, that match really affected me as a young boy. They go, I have a daughter now, and I want my sons and my daughters to have equal opportunity. And when they say that to me, I am so happy. The girls make me happy and the boys make me happy differently. But the men that have daughters are amazingly to me. They, I'm telling you, they cry every time almost. Well, but people forget, get, getting back to the women, 1973, and I was shocked to learn this, women no couldn't card? even get credit cards without no. the signature of, of a, a male. Yeah, we so, had to co-sign with somebody. So that, that victory, how do you think it 
you know, in, impacted how women viewed themselves and just... I think it, it changed men and women's thoughts because even President Obama was 12 years old when he watched the match and now he has two daughters. He said, that match changed my life. He says, I know I raised my daughters a little bit differently, a little bit, give them more, like, I just know I, I, I think differently because of that. And that's what guy, guys got. So if I don't affect both genders, I'm not happy. Because everybody goes, well, look at all the bets they had against each other. I said, no, here's what it did, though. It brought everybody together. Rosie says if you lost, that Ugh. she believes it would have set women back 20 years. I um, totally agree. No. Really? Oh. I mean, that much? Oh, you have, see, you're so young, you don't realize, you don't know what was, you can't get the flavor of what was going on. There were marriages that happened because of that match. There was 100 million people in the world thought that. That was a lot in those days. You got to remember, we only had four channels in 1970. We didn't even have cable TV. There was a lot of focus. There wasn't all, you know, nowadays there's so much going on in the stimuli that comes in. Four channels. We had the three top ones and then we had PBS. That's it. No cable, nothing else. We were just going to touch-tone telephones. How concerned were you about its impact on Title IX had you lost? Very. In fact, I was more worried about that. Why? Because I wanted the hearts and minds to start. You can have legislation, but if don't, people don't believe it in their hearts and minds, they'll get around it. And they're still trying to get around it, okay? Girls High School today, right today, it's exactly where the boys were in 1971 and 72, okay? People think we've caught up. We're not caught up. We're not even close. We're at 75, I told you, 77 cents on the dollar. When I played Bobby Riggs, we're at 59 cents on the dollar. Women of color even make less than that, okay? I think women of color are at 59 cents right now. That was 1973 for white women. So it's just, we're not even close, but it, it, it just shifted. I wanted the hearts and minds and people to match up with the legislation, that I don't want a boy or a girl to be discriminated against because of their gender, ever, ever, ever. And we still are, and I don't like it. I don't like it when anyone is discounted, any human being is discounted for whatever, you know, whether they're of color. I don't want a boy discounted anymore. I don't want a girl discounted. I don't, I, I don't want to disable somebody that has challenges, just physical challenge or whatever. I don't, want them, I don't want them discounted ever, you know, because you don't do that. Just think if, if you were discounted. If every person would think about if I'm discounted, how would I feel? Right. And you don't like it. So don't do it to others. Treat them the way you want to be treated. So I, it's, it's real, this is really not brain surgery. This is so simple. If people would just stop and take a beat and say, how would I want to be treated? The golden rule is my parents were huge on that. Always think about how would you feel if you treated someone like that? So if I screw up, because I have a hot temper, and say something, I better go apologize, but I better not do it again either. Because you know some people keep doing it over and over and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, no, no. You can do it once, but you can't keep doing it. So from reading the couple books you've written and the various profile stories that have been done on you over the years, you've been very open about your sexuality. Um, Lately, yes. Uh, <laughs> not in the beginning. Right, not, not in the I beginning. I didn't know. I was well, paralyzed. Well, you, so you, you were outed, but explain why you made the decision to go public in a press conference. Well, I think... Um, because everybody around you wasn't encouraging you. No, to. in fact, my lawyer and my publicist was like yelling at me not to say anything and say it's not true. And I said, but it is true. Well, what she said, it wasn't all true, but the affair was true. Yeah. And I, uh, Marilyn Barnett, and I said, uh, no, I'm going to tell the truth. So I fought with them for 48 hours straight, crying, telling them I had to do this, I have to tell the truth. 
and the media had always been fair to me. I mean, I've given them everything I had. I mean, I was always good to them. And I thought, you know, I just have to tell the truth because I, I can't live with it, and it's, um, I'm not going to deny it. I just don't believe in that. Once, um, and anything, if, if it's true, then, you know, be woman enough or man enough to stand up and tell your truth. But my mother always, one of her, her uh, important things was to that I know self be true even though they're very homophobic. So, but they came and they came there. I got a hand it to them. They didn't have a clue what was going on. They showed up. What do you recall from it? I recall everyone being very tense. Everybody couldn't figure out what, you know, um, I, you could hear a pin drop when I said, uh, I did have an affair with Marlon, but the whole meeting, because you know, I, I knew all these people. It's not like I didn't have history with most of them, right. but I told the truth and I said I made a mistake, but I didn't make, some people misconstrued what I meant. I meant, I, believe, I believe in monogamy nothing to do with the gay thing. Right. I think some people thought I said it was a mistake because I was with a woman, mm -hmm. and that's not what I meant at all. Right. I meant monogamy. Right. And I, if I thought, if I knew what I know now, I would have made that clear. But I was a little uh, under a lot of stress as well right. at that moment. That was very stressful. I've had some stressful moments, so has everybody in their life. Right, and it must have seemingly been difficult having to tell your husband about what happened, but you mentioned you were raised in a homophobic ha sure. household. That's, so I mean, let's face it, I was homophobic. I still catch myself once in a while getting a little lurch in my gut and going, ah, it still raises, really? ah, of course, because you grow up in this environment. You know, this is, we're in the, we're in the 21st century, it's very different. I mean, every five years it gets better. In this country, in the United States, but not in Russia, not another. I mean, they've okayed hate now. This is the 21st century. This is what we got to figure out. Um, but it's 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 an amazing. Uh, it's still not. It's still not safe. It doesn't feel safe all the time. World Team Tennis, co-founded in uh, 1974. You you've said your greatest contribution to it will the, be. the sport. Um, People don't realize what, it yet. And what makes you say that? Well, first of all, in 1962, when Larry and I met, we were sitting in the library, and of course we were talking, we shouldn't have been, but we were. <laughs> I said, I always want to make tennis a big sport. And he says, it can't be a big sport. I said, why? He said, because the challenge is going to be that 50% of the players lose first round, 75% have lost by the second round. So very few players are ever getting known. He said, the top three men and women will control everything. He's correct, by the way, to this day. He's correct. So he said, well, I want it to be a team sport. I said, I want it to be a team sport. I love team. I don't like individual that well. It's, I'm good at it. In fact, I'm great at it, but I don't, it doesn't make me get all excited like I get excited with, with mixed doubles or doubles, yeah. you know, or a team. And I grew up in team sports. So we started talking through the years, and I said, I would love men and women being on the same team because that's why I want the world to look. I want us to champion each other be good to each other, the kind of way my brother and I are to each other. And I really believe in that's what we have to do. And, and that's why you said it represents your philosophy. It, it totally on, represents, well, because if you think about it, we have a set of everything in tennis. We have a set of men's and women's singles, a set of men's and women's doubles, and a set of mixed. So you have equal gender representation throughout the night. When a child comes to watch a match, he or she is watching boys and girls, men and women, cooperating in this common objective, just like men do in, in team sports and women do in women's sports. But we're doing it together. You mentioned uh, President Obama and the impact uh, the Battle of the Sexes uh, had on his yeah, daughter uh, and bringing them up. You were honored by him with the Medal of Freedom. Oh, what a great uh, day. What do you recall from that? Well, I never expected it. I, 
I would appreciate it because I know Arthur Ashe had gotten one, and I, then I realized no woman athlete had gotten one, which was not good. Um, so it's good news. It's nice to be the first, but then it makes me sad in that why weren't someone like Althea or other women that I knew in other sports as well hadn't gotten one. And, uh, but it was such an honor that day because Sandra Day O'Connor, one of my sheroes, was there. And I say shero for girls and heroes for boys. Uh, all these people were there that I admire and I couldn't believe I was sitting side by side with them like, oh my God. Um, it's, it's such a weird, it was just, I, my whole life flashed in front of me thinking. Really? Yeah, because you think about, okay, I think about my parents, my brothers, Susan, Clyde, you know, or Mr. Brennan, all these different people that helped me in my lifetime. It really represented all those people and me is how I looked at it. So it was kind of a fascinating experience to go through that as he's, you know, they're reading off things and saying, I, you know, and I'm thinking, wow. You know, and then I just, so I just kept thinking about all the people that got me here. I'm not sitting there because I did it. It's because everybody helped get me there. Yeah, I had to go do certain things, but it was, it's really a team effort. Everything's a team effort when you think about it. That's why I like team. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Graham. It's great meeting you. Thanks for listening to my chat with Billie Jean King. Head over to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger to check out her fruitless attempts to help me improve my game. There you can also watch more content with other tennis greats like Novak Djokovic, Andy Murray, and John McEnroe. Also follow us on TikTok at Graham Bensinger and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again for listening.